0: you <phone rings>
1: It's making that extra effort to try and get outside your common networks and connect with others to really make up for what is clearly an unfair bias in our community. There are all kinds of groups that are underrepresented, but puts the responsibility on us to try to reach out to other networks? I think at the end of the day, you're foolish if you don't understand the economic value of reaching out to diverse founders as well, right? if you look at our society, we're increasingly global, we're increasingly diverse. And if you're ignoring large swaths of the population, you're going to miss out. My name is Joe Medved and I'm a model minority.
0: Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City.
2: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
0: Through conversations with some really interesting people, We uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
2: Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about.
0: Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between.
2: This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Joe Medved. Joe is the SB Capital Partner at Lair Hippo Ventures, a leading early stage venture capital firm here in New York City. Lair Hippo has actually invested in many startups you've not yet heard of, and a few that you have, like Casper, Giphy, Camp, BarkBox, Allbirds, Fatherly, and Splash.
0: That is a very long list of companies, Roman. But aren't they cool companies? (laughs) They're the best companies ever. Do you think they'll sponsor our podcast?
2: (laughs) <laughs> Facebook invests in Giphy now, so or, or bought Giphy. So I don't know how I feel about that. And I have like a Giphy love affair on on Slack. I love Slack.
0: Giphy. Oh yeah, I love Giphy and Slack together. It like totally makes my day <laughs> anytime. <laughs>
2: well, look, Joe. I met Joe when I first started flirting with the idea of going to startups when I was still on the big brand side. Yeah, and he, I stand by this statement, and I will actually add to it. Not only do I believe he's the nicest VC in the world, which that's kind of a weird thing to say because, you know, yeah. low base. But he's actually <laughs> a, just one of the nicest professionals that I've met in this New York City industry. He's just a genuinely good human being who will sit down with you, want to understand where you're coming from, see where we can help each other very practically. And he just he's offered me a lot of advice along the way. And so when we started this podcast, he was actually one of the first quote unquote model majorities that I wanted to talk to other than my friend, Carl, you guys have already heard from by now, just because of how, how good natured he is and how willing he is to have a candid conversation about the really real.
0: Yeah. I, I know you've always, you had always referred to him as the nicest VC in the world. And I'm like, what a bumper sticker thing to say. Like, what is, what does that even mean? And after spending time with him, I totally got it. I mean, he's, he's super smart. But he also, not but, but and, he also approaches things, I think, from a very thoughtful and compassionate place. One of the things that he had mentioned that stands out to me was, I think we had asked him how he got into venture capital or entrepreneurship. And he told us a story about an uncle of his that was a serial entrepreneur, always ran his own businesses and kind of mentored him into that space. And yet as he was, I guess, entering that space himself for really kind of learning about running businesses, he kind of felt like he wanted more. And he felt as if he was struggled a little bit with how that made him feel when it was just about money or just about success. And I think that says a lot about who he is and what his values are. Yeah. And the thing,
2: he talks a lot about his investment strategy is people, right? And You know, he definitely did highlight and towed the company line in a good way. How Lara Hippo has like his, the firm he's at now has spearheaded a lot of diversity initiatives for entrepreneurs. But then, you know, we decided and we, we told him we were, we're going to ask him some hard questions about some of the stats out there about minorities and females not getting the money to start their businesses.
0: Yep. And I, I remember the moment that we had posed that question to him and he, he kind of stepped back and he had said, you know. It's less about, it's not like it's based on skin color, but it's actually about connections and it's about networks because this is all about, like the VC world is very much about who you know and introductions that can be made. So not only did he sort of give some color into that, but he also... unattended. intended? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty poetic, aren't I? Pretty punny. But I. he also talked a lot about initiatives that he's involved with, as well as just other really great groups in the investment world that are making big strides with changing that dynamic, you know, intentionally directing their money towards women of color or communities of color. And Joe's a really big supporter of that. So.
2: And he even gave some like super practical advice because he was like, he wasn't just like, Hey, if you're a minority, like here's how to go get money. He was like, talk to people. Ask for more favors, like go after a person that's been successful, ask for a favor, go to a meeting, ask for an intro. And it was just like this really practical advice about, he acknowledged that the cards might be stacked against them, right? From a Mm -hmm. network effect standpoint. But then he also talked about a more diverse portfolio was better for his company to make money, right? And it's just like, he's like, like, you should like just... check out this episode. If you're an entrepreneur, try his approach. But the one thing I will warn you about is at the end of the episode, (sighs) Joe said something really, really provocative. And when you find out that the food that he does not like, you might just unsubscribe from this podcast.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Don't unsubscribe.
2: (laughs) Joe, our friendship is in jeopardy because of what you told me at the end of this podcast. So we think you're really going to enjoy this chat with our friend Joe. Joe, welcome to Model Minorities. Thanks for having me. So Joe, before you got your start in venture capital, before you went to college, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your life growing up, the neighborhood you grew in, the type of people you grew up around, your family, because it's probably a little bit different from that of all of our listeners. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your growing up life?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so I grew up in New Hampshire in a pretty blue collar neighborhood. I mean, my, my neighbors were postmen or HVAC workers you know, some bank, you know, bank tellers, people like that. And almost everybody around me was white. Almost everybody around me was Catholic. I mean, I think in my hometown, there was a Catholic church on like every other corner, kind of akin to what you'd see a Starbucks in New York City, which led me to believe the vast majority of the world were white Catholics. I was actually shocked when I found out that JFK was the first and only Catholic president because I assumed everybody was Catholic. But so it was obviously not a very diverse upbringing. It was really not until I went to college in Boston at at BC that, you know, I, I got exposed to a broader part of the world, which was quite different from, you know, the backyard that I spent most of my time in as a child. What did your parents do? So my mom was a high school math teacher, which came in handy at times. And my father, my father for most of his career worked for the Red Cross. So they both kind of came from the nonprofit world, you know, kind of very different experiences than I'm sure my children are you know, are growing up with today here in New York City.
2: And I guess, how did you go from being, you know, a New Hampshire Catholic kid to the world of venture capital? Or does does everybody from New Hampshire go into finance, I guess?
1: Yeah, everyone who grows in New Hampshire dreams of being a VC in New York City. Yeah, I wanted to be president or a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. I really, I kind of got into finance... I became interested initially in investment banking when I was in college, in part because I had an uncle who was a successful entrepreneur. And he told me if he could come back in life, he'd be a banker. I think that's because he'd pay them too much in fees. But so, you know, so I I decided to go into investment banking, which really brought me to New York City. And my wife was who I met in college, was actually from New York City as well. So it was a convenient place to shift to and move. And after a couple of years in banking, I realized it's not something. I wanted to do long-term, but I, I always had a general interest in business. And so that's kind of what led me to this path.
2: What made you so interested in business in general?
1: I think in part, I grew up, particularly in high school, I grew up feeling like the poor kid and it's, the, it's no knock on my parents at all. I think my, my parents gave me an amazing existence kind of growing up, really teaching me kind of morally how, how to behave. And, but they just, you know, they had jobs that were not, you don't get paid a lot as a, as a math teacher or someone who runs like a chapter of the Red Cross. It's, they're very rewarding jobs. But like going to college in particular, like I had a lot of friends that, you know, would go on a lot of vacations and buy nicer clothes. And I, and I think part of it just made me sort of want to be able to try and live a different existence that wasn't that didn't feel so challenged. I, I don't know that I felt bad about not having as, as much money. It's just that, you know, I was a, I was a child that wanted more. And, you know, and I did, I had this uncle who was a very successful entrepreneur and he and my father really helped kind of mentor me into that direction. But I think to be honest, like what, the first couple the kind of role that I really had in finance, it just felt like I was a little, it was a little bit too greedy of a role, not a knock on Is this I'm kind of like Wolf of Wall Street sort of stuff? Yeah, no, it's, it was just like, I, I just, it wasn't, I don't want to say greedy. That's not fair. I didn't feel like it was as fulfilling, right? I mean, I had parents who felt very fulfilled by their jobs And they, you know, I mean, being a teacher is an incredible job that's, that's clearly underpaid in this country and, and running a nonprofit. I think we're all learning
2: that right now, Jeff.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Every parent in America is like, oh my God, I didn't realize how painful this is. And you're only trying to deal with (laughs) one child, not like 30 in a classroom. So I think I, I always had great respect for what my parents did. And I think at least the first role I had, it just didn't, it felt like I was doing like financial engineering which some people really enjoy. And, and I actually I actually do enjoy some math, but not so much that I, I think I want to spend the rest of my life. So
0: speaking of your parents and, and how you ended up, what did your parents want you to be? Did they have any expectations of you as you were growing up?
1: Yeah, they were actually, I mean, my, my parents were great. Like they really never put too much pressure on us as children. I mean, I think I had two sisters, one older, one younger, and we were all relatively strong students. And I think as long as we got decent grades and they felt like we tried hard, they were happy. I think I honestly pushed myself probably more more than anyone. I was just naturally a very competitive person, a little more so even than my sisters. They were always sort of annoyed by how competitive I would be at times. And so I think that drove me to, to kind of want to do something bigger in a bigger place. I mean, I, you know, I have friends back in New Hampshire that think it's nuts that I live in New York City, but I can't imagine living anywhere else. I just, I love the intensity of the city when, when we're allowed to go outside. And I love just sort of the pulse of the city, the people, the, the varying backgrounds. It's just exciting to me. And, and, and I think that it just kind of drove me to want to, you know, have kind of a long-term future in a place like this.
2: Mm-hmm. How is that different from who you are today? Like, you know, the ambition that got you into finance, right? The drive to kind of have a different life than the one you grew up with versus the experiences you're having today. Like what is a, what is a day in the life of, of Joe, Joe, the VC?
1: Yeah. So I really became interested in venture capital sort of towards, I was an investment banker for about five years and we worked on all these like huge transactions. I worked on this one massive acquisition that was like one of the largest of all time. And it was like two and a half years of like running financial models and, and the, the bank collected millions of dollars in fees. It was a very successful business transaction, but it just wasn't as fulfilling as it was for me to work with some of the smaller companies that we advised. and And that's what led me to want to get involved on the investment side of the world. And particularly as I explored it further, like really working with early stage companies, where it's just a very different type of job. I mean, today, like, I mean, if I could afford it, I would do my job for free. Like, I just get to meet with all these fascinating people. From all different types of backgrounds all day long, people who are, you know, in many cases deemed nuts by broader society because they're trying to develop something so disruptive and innovative. And it's just inspiring work to be able to, you know, partner with these types of people and help try and fulfill their dreams. And look, most of them fail, right? I mean, the statistics show that the vast majority of entrepreneurs do not succeed, but those who do. Can really create some sort of game-changing businesses and experiences, and I think you're seeing, particularly in, in this crisis we're going through right now with this COVID nineteen. I mean, the the healthcare-focused entrepreneurs that we have backed are are helping change the world, and so it becomes a lot more fulfilling, and it and it, it helps it helps really fill that that hole that I think I had when I was focused purely on the financial engineering side. Um, and so nice we have the benefit, basically, of meeting with all these interesting people all day long, and you know and consistently trying to support people that you effectively marry for a 10 to 12 year period and go through a ton of ups and downs and, you know, try to have a great outcome at the end of the day.
0: That's great. And so you've talked a little bit about what your day to day is like, but A lot of our listeners are very curious to know the specifics of, you know, are you, do you roll into the office and you're meeting people back to back to back and just kind of, is it like Shark Tank where you're just listening to pitches? What's your day-to-day like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, every VC fund is kind of like a small company, right? So we all come together on a daily basis. And, and, you know, once a week, usually the, the partnership meets together, to, you know, focus on the priorities for that week, which could be closing new investments or supporting, you know, follow on rounds in, in existing businesses or trying to sell companies. But the majority of the day really is communicating with either people we've already backed. Or with new companies we're looking to invest in, and sometimes with like co-investors or people we're trying to recruit to those companies. people We want to be customers of those businesses, and so there's there's unfortunately a lot of email. I try to do most of that early in the morning or, or late at night when I'm back home, and then the majority of the rest of the day it, it could be a board meeting, it could be meeting with you know someone who's trying to recruit to a new business or or hearing a pitch. And so definitely hearing pitches is a big part of it. And I think any investor could fill their entire day with pitches, but you try to figure out how to filter those pitches over time to, you know prioritize the most likely ones that you would back.
2: Talk about the filtering, your mental filtering process.
1: So it varies by firm, right? But so if you look at our fund, so Lear Hippo has a, a relatively broad focus. We're really founder centric. We just want to back really brilliant founders. And so we'll generally look across every sector other than really, we don't do a lot in biotech. We just don't really sort of understand molecules in the way a lot of other experienced investors do, but we'll invest in a range of consumer and enterprise businesses. And for us we want to invest in a business typically when there's some kind of like alpha or beta product, you know, there's there's at least a handful of people on the team, potentially there's some early revenue, and generally we're structuring the filters based on like, you know, we're trying to take as many warm leads as possible. I think the best filter we have is our existing group of founders that we've that we've backed in the past. So we've across our various entities we've invested in probably 400 companies you know, a tremendous amount of, of high quality founders in there. And, and we, you know, we're often discovering new founders from that existing network, or we're actually looking to back some of those people a second or third time around.
0: Are there certain traits that you look for when it comes to founders or operations that you tend to invest in?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, the key thing about a founder, like one, they have to really be able to effectively communicate a vision for the business for the long term right so they really in a, in a way have to be an evangelist like a believable evangelist but someone who can you know paint this vision that is you know they're, they're trying to build this you know paint this masterpiece but at the point where they're coming to us like maybe there's a couple trees on the page right i mean they're they're really developing this but we have to believe that they can construct that over time we have to believe they can recruit you know the, the best team members to help them build it that they can properly sell. And that they can, you know, move faster than competitors in the market, whether they're, they're going after an existing space, or they're going to see some fast followers around them. And so it's got to be that incredibly sort of passionate individual. But, you know, and it can't be someone who's they, they have to also really be able to get things done and they have to be willing and able to hire great people around them. It's all about teams, right? You have to have one great founder, but if they can't construct a team around them that, you know, uh, the competition will crush.
2: Is there a is there a risk to kind of people know people who are like them, right? A lot of the tech companies have come under fire for that sort of thing. So, And I, I know very little about LayerHip was like early round of founders and investors you worked with, but like do they all look the same? And I know that's not what you're trying to go after, but how do you control or how do you try to get beyond that to get the same group of people who went to Stanford or MIT or the same group of people who grew up in New York ad tech, etc.?
0: Yeah, can I be even more explicit, since this is model minorities? Sure. In terms of people of color, I think that there's a statistic that shows that black female founders tend to get the least percentage of funding. So... Talk to us a little bit more about that, too, if if that's true of what you've seen or if that's purely based on either relationships or background or social circles like Raman has mentioned.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, if you you look across our portfolio, and I I don't have the latest data, but- you know, we've been on lists that, you know, talk about us being one of the largest backers of female founders. Yay, that's amazing. But, but, but even for us, it's honestly, it's still probably pathetic, like relative <laughs> to, to the broader population, but it's pathetic right. for the whole industry. Right. So, and I think part of the issue is what I touched on before is that like a lot of the filter is your existing network. And mm-hmm. I think, if you look at VCs generally, it's a group of people that are always looking to back kind of innovators, people who are potentially outsiders that want to disrupt the status quo. And who better to do that than than minorities in, in many situations, right? So I think I think generally you've seen a wave across the industry of of one of hiring more diverse people to the to teams, right? But if you look at our team, you know we've and it it tends to be more in the junior ranks, right? Because generally when people hire, they want to hire people with experience, and unfortunately we have an industry that's been dominated primarily by people that look like me, and so there's there's not there's not necessarily a very diverse pool of like partner level candidates. Although although more people are realizing you should you know you should look outside the box and consider hiring those types of partners. And then you're seeing a lot of junior people that are hired with diverse backgrounds as well. So like our investment team, the core investment team, there's nine people, three are female, though they're all junior, right? There's none that are a partner yet that, that I'm sure will change over time. And so that's a critical piece. And I've even just, and I've been at Layer Hippo for four or five years now, I was at SoftBank for a decade prior to that. But I've seen it Layer even as we've built the diversity on our team, we're now seeing a more diverse group of founders as well, right? So we're we're backing increasingly more like female founded businesses, but we still have to, you know, broaden things further there too. Like one of my colleagues is is Latino and he's been trying to help bring more Latino entrepreneurs on board. And I think particularly if you look in New York, there's been a number of funds that have popped up to help try and back more underrepresented founders and I think the way to do it, like we recently, we were sponsoring an event that was supposed to happen, that will happen again, will be rescheduled once things stabilize, but by a group called Harlem Capital, which is a new fund here in New York City, which was launched by by all diverse partners. And, and they're out there to try and help back diverse founders. But another thing they're trying to do is to become sort of a super node in the network to help groups like ours connect to more more diverse entrepreneurs. And so I think you know, having more groups like theirs entering the community should should be beneficial for, for you know, driving more diversity.
0: I love that. Robin, do you want to take the next question?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a personal one, Joe, and whether it's related to you being a VC or you being a, a white guy in finance, in case, in case our audience didn't know that <laughs> um, <laughs> Shocker. You know, look, ever since like 9-11, frankly, like when a cultural group does something wrong, and if that cultural group even looks like mine, right, as a brown guy, I feel responsible. Like, you know, I got a lot of, and I have to be the voice of not all brown people are bad, you know, or frankly, even in the marketing world, right? Like I come out of like a big data, ad tech, cookies, (laughs) cookies and targeting world. And when bad actors happen, I feel accountable for them a little bit, or I feel like I need to rep the good guys. And so as a guy in VC or a, a white male holding the purse strings, you know, make or break investments in companies. How do you feel when that happens? Or do you even see the world that way? Or am I the crazy one? And it's same question you, Sharon. Like, I haven't asked you those questions. Like, I know there's a lot of mean things being said to East Asian people because of yeah. the, the quote, unquote Chinese, low, Chinese virus.
1: virus.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: So anyway, Joe, as a white male in finance, like how do you process and internalize that?
1: Yeah, I feel the same way as you do, right? It's, although, it's, Like if I, if I step back, like sometimes I feel like I'm apologizing for some of my old crazy friends in New Hampshire, like when, and pardon anyone, whatever anyone's politics are, like when I see a massive Trump rally in my hometown... You know, I'm embarrassed by it.
2: As a guy from Alabama, I feel
1: <laughs> sure, yeah, you. Yeah, you know, you you know the same crowd. But similarly, sometimes, honestly, even just as a New Yorker, sometimes I feel like New Yorkers are wildly obnoxious and and don't you know don't respect you know kind of other parts of the country as well, right? We have we can have a myopic perspective of our own, but I think what you try to do naturally, and, and I do think a, I think a lot of funds and VCs are doing this. We are all really trying to. Broaden our networks. And that's that's the key to it. I mean, like in New York is this amazing place with so many diverse cultures, but naturally you see, you know, clicks form and, and and different types of people hanging out with people that are more similar to them. And so you have to, there has to be a proactive effort to reach out to others. And I think what we tried to do like as VCs, and actually this one diverse investor told me, I was like, how can I do a better job of connecting with diverse founders? And what he suggested mm-hmm. to me, he said, he said, look, VCs naturally like with this filter that we discussed, right? Are less likely to meet with, with entrepreneurs that reach out unsolicited, right? It's just a much lower hit rate. Right? Cause you just, there's so much noise. Like it's, it's impossible to, to operate otherwise. But what he said is like, look, when it's a diverse founder, bend the rules a little bit, right? You need to be more willing to meet with those people unsolicited because they don't naturally have the same networks that people look like you do. And so you know, there's a greater effort now to try to connect with more founders like that. So, so it's it's trying to do more, like some groups are doing open office hours, or like I mentioned, we were participating in this event. that was a pitch event with all diverse founders. It's making that extra effort to try and get outside your common networks and you know connect with others to really make up for what is clearly an unfair bias in our community, right? Because there are, I mean, there are all kinds of groups that are underrepresented, but it sort of it puts the responsibility on us to you know to try to reach out to other networks and, and like at the end of the day they like and this is what will drive whether or not people have a good heart. I think at the end of the day you're foolish if you don't understand the the economic value of reaching out to diverse founders as well right and if you look at our society, we're increasingly global, we're increasingly diverse, and if you're ignoring large swaths of the population, you're going to miss out. And so I'm hoping that will help naturally change things over time as well.
2: Do you think you're the exception? Because I've always said you're like one of the nicest VCs I've ever met. But do you think you're the exception or is this kind of mental trend taking place? Like, are there more bad actors or good actors or just even just kind of medium actors who aren't taking action one way or the other?
1: No, I think there are so many great firms and investors. Out there. I think honestly that the minority, I think, of VCs are actually, you know, I would hope there are very few racist VCs out there. I think people are naturally implicitly biased, but I think generally, like I said before, I mean, I think there are so many funds out there that are trying to increase the diversity of the entrepreneurs that they're backing, the, the entrepreneur, the, the the representation on their teams as well. And look, it, but it's, it starts across the whole kind of community. Like we're all funded by limited partners, right, which are large endowments or family offices or fund of funds and like they have to be willing to focus on backing more diverse investors who may not have the same level of track record. When we're hiring people, we have to take the same approach. And when you're looking at founders, you have to be, you have to be willing to meet with, you know, sort of folks outside your network as I've discussed. So but I think I wouldn't begin to pretend that I'm the only one who feels this way. I think I think the majority of investors do feel this way and feel a responsibility. And it's slow to change, but I feel like we are starting to see change, particularly in New York. I think you know New York is just such an interesting, culturally rich city where you're just naturally seeing, I think, the community really sort of embrace this push towards greater diversity. That's great.
0: So you mentioned that you think a majority of, of other organizations and institutions are making these changes. Can you think of any specific ones or... Anything that comes to mind?
1: If you look in the New York ecosystem, like just in terms of funds that are that are now being run by diverse partners, right? So there's like, I mean, uh, on the female side, there's Female Founders Fund. There's Built by Girls. My old partner from SoftBank Capital, Marissa Campisi, recently raised a new fund called Rucker Park. And in terms of African American founders, so I mentioned Harlem Capital. There's a fund called Equal Ventures with Richard Kirby. He used to be at Venrock, who's African American. Fund called Six Forty Five Ventures, which also has African American co-founders. So I, I think you're naturally seeing a lot of these funds popping up, and as a result, I think we're just going to see more. and well, I certainly feel like we're seeing more and more diverse founders as well. But it, you know, it takes time, right? I mean, any of these, it, it takes years to develop a fund. It takes or you, it takes years to raise them, and then it takes ten or twelve years to deploy an initial fund. And it takes a lot of these companies 10 or 12 years to grow as well. It's not something that will change overnight, but you're seeing the seeds of more sort of diverse players across, you know, different stakeholders in the community. And I think that naturally should help, help change the, you know, the overall pool long term. Yeah.
0: And so So. what advice would you give to somebody who is a minority, wants to start a business and wants to start raising capital? What's something they should know?
1: I would certainly look for it. And there are, like I said, there's a lot of new funds out there that are specifically focused on helping back minority founders. I think those are a great entree into the community because generally, like I said, investors, they want to know that you can get to them through some kind of warm lead because they want you to be able to do the same thing with potential recruits, customers, et cetera. So if you're finding it challenging to get directly to some of the kind of larger names in the community that typical players like find these newer funds that are specifically looking for individuals like yourself. And the key to it, and I would say this to any entrepreneur, is just to network like mad, right? Whether you're, you know, white, black, brown, purple, whatever it is, like network like crazy and try to find that way in. There are so many events, again, once we get back to normalcy here, there's so many events where you can connect with other investors, other great entrepreneurs, Often, find, finding another great entrepreneur who can be a mentor to you is is highly valuable. They can help with connections and, and validate your capabilities. And if you if you can't find events that are specifically relevant even to the to the type of business that you're trying to start, then then start your own networking events. You know, find other people who are your peers, and even if it's half a dozen of you, get together you know for drinks one night and say, let's meet again next month, and everybody bring a friend, right? And build out your network that way. But that's the key to it. You just you have to. Go out and build a diverse network yourself and try to, you know, find people who are interested in the same, you know, segments that you're trying to disrupt who can help you eventually connect to the right investor. Great.
2: So would you tell your kids, I think you have kids. (laughs) I do. Would you tell them to go into this business, not being a VC, but like to go be an entrepreneur and try to go do the crazy networking dance and, you know, pitch deck in a dream and going to raise money. And, And I guess, well, let me, let me flip that. Let's assume you would let your kids do that. (laughs) Uh, What advice would you give them getting started? Never mind, like, you know, making the pitch deck, but like what skills do they need beyond just networking to get there?
1: Yeah, one, I think if you really want to be an entrepreneur, like don't do it unless you love it because it is such a challenging job, right? Like the vast majority of startups don't get funded. And even those that do, like we look at thousands of companies a year, we'll fund 20 to 25 of them. And of those 20 to 25, at least a third of those are going to fail. Another third, if you look at the traditional st- stats, you know, third will fail, a third, you know, might kind of return money and a third will actually be a hit. So, so the odds of success are clearly not in your favor. That said, if you really love, you know, innovation and disruption and you feel like you have the, you know, the stamina to try and go after it. I mean, there, there are very few things that are as, as rewarding, you know, particularly if you're building something that can really be game changing in something like healthcare, connecting people, elder care, you know, there's a range of interesting things. But I, I think really the best way to do it is is to learn from others. It's really an apprenticeship game. I mean, if you can go work, you know, there's some people that maybe they want to go work at a Facebook or a Google, you know, at this point, those companies are at such great scale. I don't know if there's as much value going there. But, you know, finding, you know, if you discover there's a specific industry you really like, trying to find a role at an interesting kind of rising startup in that segment is like getting a free education right so that when you are ready to go and launch your own business like you've seen so much of what has worked and what has failed which just significantly increases your chances of success you know i think after you know the facebook movie had come out like there were so many students coming out of school that want to go and launch their own business. Well, look, look, it's really challenging to make that work, right? I mean, I think the vast majority of entrepreneurs have learned from others over time. You know, Some people who come from places where they have more money have the flexibility to, to take the greater risk and, and sort of learn through failing a few times, but that, that's a pretty rare situation to be in. So I think if, if my children decided ultimately they were truly passionate about startups, then I'd wholeheartedly recommend they go after it, but I, I'd suggest they find the segment they love and really go work at another company first to learn how, you know, how to succeed before they really go out and raise their own dollars.
2: That's great advice. Yeah. Are Sharon, any other yeah. questions or do you want to do speed round?
0: I think I'm ready for speed round. These were really illuminating questions, Joe. Do you feel like unless there's anything else, Joe, you want to share that we didn't cover?
1: No, no, this has been great. Okay,
0: cool. Let's do speed round.
2: All right, so Joe, what's something about you that nobody expects?
1: Oh, I've told you this story before, but my mother was a nun for 14 years, which is uh, I, I think <laughs> most most people don't don't have that background. <laughs> uh, she had me after,
0: enough.
1: okay. <laughs> so it's, we're all good with God; it's okay.
2: Joe, Joe, Joe is immaculately conceived.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah right? right. Immaculate conception. Uh, <laughs> no,
2: no, no, that's
0: Did, you,
1: um, Did she ever tell you or your sisters get thee to a nunnery? No, she should have. Well, she actually, she always told us she was the rebellious nun. Like she would go you know, sneak <laughs> upstairs and have ice cream on the roof of the convent, which apparently was, you know, looked down upon. How
0: fun! So, speaking of mom, what's your favorite mom dish?
1: My favorite mom dish is probably my mom's mashed potatoes. I just love. I mean, I'm a European mutt, but. She's got a lot of Irish and she makes fantastic.
0: Yeah. What's the secret ingredient in there? What does she put in there that makes it special? I,
1: don't really, I think she uses like potato rice or something. Somehow they're always very fluffy, like much better than you get somewhere else.
0: Sounds great. What's your least favorite food?
1: Okay. This is going to be weird because I, I, this is very un-American. I do not like pizza. What?
0: <laughs> wait, wait, you said you're a New Yorker.
1: You're a New and Yorker. I know.
0: I'm people. calling the mayor.
1: I was kid. Every time there was a pizza party, I was so bummed because like I'm gonna starve because I don't like pizza. <laughs> I just I never liked cheese. It's very weird. I don't know why. Like I always loved like ice cream and milk in my cereal, but I never liked cheese, and so I never got into pizza. Well, yeah. You
2: know, Joe. Everything <laughs> I, you said before, I'm just. It's no. I disavow everything you just said. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> We're not friends anymore. What's a book or a movie? that you would recommend to someone, you know, something that, that you really relate to.
1: Here's my problem. I don't, and this is sad to say, I don't read enough books anymore because I'm mostly reading blogs. All right. Throw a blog at me, man.
2: Yeah. What's the blog that makes you smile?
1: Well, well, here's the problem. I used to love to go read like a VC or something else, but now I think I just use my like network of friends just to help me discover amazing content. Again, maybe this is leading me down the path of like being too narrowly focused, but I think in the world we live in today there's such a like a rich amount of content available online and the greatest pieces often just kind of rise to the top and it could be from someone that you've never even known before but it just becomes so appreciated by the community so I, I honestly sort of recommend following lots of high quality thinkers online and allowing the content that they really love to rise to the surface and that's really where a lot of what I consume so
2: speaking of those people then those high quality people that you follow or you follow their content and the recommendations. If there was someone you could sit down and interview in a podcast like this, who would you want
1: to have a conversation with? Oh, that's a tough question. I don't see that's my problem. I don't know if I could pick just one person, but pick three. I have great respect, certainly, for for Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures here in New York. I mean, he he's built one of the most successful venture funds globally, like out of New York City, and really built it at a time when when no one was truly active here. He's just, you know, he's built this you know, incredible platform and really sort of looking at the world in, in the way I think a lot of other people do not, which I think is wildly valuable. And I think Chamath from Facebook, if you guys know, if you sort of follow what he's done with social capital, I mean, he's, he's tried to like, if you think about trying to get, you know, to get rid of bias in investing, like he ran this experiment called capital as a service, where he effectively tried to get founders to just submit basically numbers about their business. To automatically make a decision about whether or not he should invest to completely eliminate bias it doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is, and so I think and he, he just he's a fascinating guy to listen to in any of his any of the podcasts he does, or he's been on CNBC a lot lately. You know, he stirs up a lot of controversy, but I, I just think he's a, a fascinating and interesting individual. And I don't know that the capital as a service project is is going to entirely succeed, but I think it's a really interesting experiment. So those are a couple that I really like.
0: Great, and then ready for the last question? Sure. So I think you are probably what I would call a minority of the majority. Like you, you definitely are one of the nicest VCs we've ever met. And you have a, He's very a model unique, majority. You are a model right. majority member. Yeah. But this is the same question we ask for everybody. So it'd be interesting to get your answer. And the question is, what does being a model minority mean for you?
1: I think it probably means being like open to all other cultures while still re- like retaining and utilizing sort of pride in your own culture. Like So I remember Bloomberg's got – he had some issues, obviously, with with some communities and how he treated them as mayor, which he he has to deal with. But one of the quotes that he spoke about of New York City that I always loved was that our city is a mosaic as opposed to a melting pot. And I think – What I loved about that statement is effectively, it's that, look, New York is wildly diverse. All these cultures come together. But the reason it's beautiful is because everyone still stands out and and sort of retains pride in their culture and shares that with everyone else. And that's what makes everything beautiful. And so I I think that that's like, you want to be part of that mosaic. Like you you want to be with, you want to be willing to have a diverse network, but you don't want to lose what is your own identity because that's what makes you special and sort of adds to the beauty of the whole. That's great, great,
2: man.
0: That's a
1: beautiful answer.
2: Joe, every conversation with you is fun and I feel like I learned stuff. So thank you so much for just making the time to have a conversation with us today.
1: Sure. This is fun. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks, Joe. Such a pleasure to get to know you.
1: And that's our show.
0: Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you.
2: Now, here's a preview of our next episode that is kind of where we get into the old kind of high school and middle school lessons of that nuance between the melting pot and mosaic. Because I think for a lot of people, there is the sentiment in Canada, like, yeah, I'm Canadian, but I'm Jamaican. And then, yeah, like I live here and whatever, but my culture and what I want to extend to the next generation is rooted in my heritage and not necessarily rooted in, because I also think there's a lot of conversations around kind of the nebulousness of Canadian identity, like does it even exist wholesale anyways? So it's always an interesting nuance to me. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel.
0: And I'm still Sharon Tony.
2: Remember, we're all auto minorities out there.
0: We'll talk to you soon.